Welcome to Season 3 of A New Voice of Freedom. The podcasts are taken from the four volumes In Defense of Christianity, written by Ronald Keith Messer. Podcast 29 is entitled Heirs of God and Joint Heirs with Christ. I take the title of this podcast from the writings of Paul. Linda, will you please read Romans eight sixteen through 17? The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if it so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. Romans eight sixteen through 17 Notice the four primary propositions stated by Paul. 1. We are children of God. 2. We are heirs of God. 3. We are joint heirs with Christ. And 4. We may be also glorified together. What does it mean to be a child of God? If we take it literally, we must be the offspring of God. The Savior himself taught us how to pray. We begin with, Our Father which art in heaven. In that phrase we are taught who we pray to and where he is. Earthly families are a microcosm of heavenly families. Let's go back to the story of the creation of man stated in Genesis. And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. The pattern is set in heaven, the same pattern that he follows on earth. How is it that God created man in our image and after our likeness? Who does the plural pronoun our refer to? First, let's examine the words image and likeness. Image and likeness are synonyms. There is overlap, making the terms interchangeable. Therefore, for information, we must examine the differences. Synonyms for image are resemblance, conception, appearance, shape, frame, cast, mold, copy, facsimile, correspondent, complement, materialization. Synonyms for likeness are representation, portrait, portrayal, sculpture, statue, clay model, replica, duplicate, reproduction, identical twin, living or very image, Look-alike, clone, exact match, perfect likeness, spit an image, outward form, double, shape, figure, features, or similitude. The differences suggest that when God said, let us make man in our image, he is referring to a spiritual image. In other words, he is the father of our spirits, which are after the image of his spirit. Let us make man suggests two parents, not one. It presents an argument for a heavenly mother. Paul's statement then becomes literal. We are the children of God, or his offspring. Let us make man after our likeness is referring to a physical image. In other words, he made it possible for us to have physical bodies. Our likeness suggests that God also has a physical body. And for us to be in our image and likeness, we must have both a spiritual body and a physical body. Look again at the synonyms for likeness. They suggest a corporeal image, outward form, spitting image, perfect likeness, clay model, sculpture, 
figure, similitude. We may take the words of Paul and of Moses literally. Let's continue with the words of Moses. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them. And God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowls of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Genesis one twenty six through 28 Now let us address the plural pronoun our. Again, when God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, why would he create both male and female if the pronoun our did not include both a male and a female model? That would make us the literal offspring of God, having both a heavenly father and a heavenly mother. Created in the image of God suggests that we were first created spiritually. Created after the likeness of God suggests that we were second created physically. In the story of creation, Moses wrote, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Genesis 2, 7. It should be no surprise that earth was first created spiritually, as made clear by Moses. Again, let's go to the story of creation. The book of Genesis gives us two stories of creation. The first story of creation is spiritual. The second story of creation is physical. The economy of language is fantastic. The story is in the brilliant parallelism of Hebrew poetry. First of all, refer back to the economy of the creation of man. Image refers to the spiritual creation, and likeness refers to the temporal creation. They are in the same sentence, but are worlds apart in meaning. Moses tells the story of the creation of the earth with the same economy of language. In the same verses, he is talking about both a spiritual creation and a temporal creation. We can separate the two by the obvious clues. For example, in chapter 1, we have the story of creation. It seems so clear until we read the strange beginning of chapter 2. Notice verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. Genesis 2.1 How could all the host of the earth be created before God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life? The breath of life is the spirit created in the image of God. In other words, Adam's spirit was placed in his physical body, and only then did he become a living soul. All the host of them then refers to all the spirit children of God. It follows that our spirits were created first, before Adam was placed in the Garden of Eden. That is not possible unless Moses is talking about a spiritual creation. For example, how could God have created the heavens and the earth, and all the host of them, when everyone hasn't been born on earth yet. We are still multiplying and replenishing the earth. Yet it is clear that before the earth changed to its temporal state, all the hosts that would come to earth were already created. Where were they created? The answer is clear. We were all created, the entire host that would inhabit the earth, as spirits in heaven. That adds meaning to the enigmatic statement found in Job 38. Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare, if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measure thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? 
when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Job 38, 4-7 Those sons of God were all the host of them. They were the morning stars who sang together. They were all the sons of God who shouted for joy when the foundations of the earth were laid. We were in heaven with God. God created this earth for us, and we were very excited. We were already as spirits created in the image of God, but we had to come to earth to be created after the likeness of God. In other words, to gain a physical body, we had to come to earth. Like Adam, we too became a living soul when God places our spirit into our body, what Moses called the breath of life. Life resides in the spirit, not in the physical body. Without the spirit, there is no life. All living things have a spirit. In that context, the next verses in chapter 2 of Genesis make perfect sense. And every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. Genesis 2, 5. If all the hosts of heaven were created, why wasn't there a man to till the ground? The answer is simple. We were spirits. It is now that the Lord finishes the story of creation. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight, and good for food and the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Genesis 2, 7-9 The first chapter of our life as spirits in the image of God began in heaven. The second chapter as a living soul, or as a spirit and physical body combined, began on earth. Jude calls the first chapter of our lives the first estate. And the angels which kept not their first estate but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Jude 1, 6 The first estate refers to our life with our Father in heaven. It logically follows that our life on earth after the temple creation would be referred to as our second estate. First, we were tried by Lucifer in our first estate. Now, we are being tried by Satan in our second estate. In our first estate as spirits, we chose to follow Christ. We fought with Michael against Lucifer in heaven. That is how we earned the right to come to earth and gain a physical body. The third part who followed Lucifer were cast out of heaven. They were the angels which kept not their first estate. They were denied physical bodies. We came to earth for a purpose. What is that purpose? First, we're told in Moses to gain a physical body to multiply and replenish the earth, to have dominion over the earth, and to gain knowledge of good and evil, in other words, to have agency. That brings us back to the writings of Paul quoted above. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If it so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. Romans 8, 16-17 We have already learned that we are the children of God. Paul also teaches us that we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. 
What does it mean to be heirs of God? To inherit means to acquire or to receive or to be bequeathed. It generally refers to possessions handed down from fathers or mothers to their children. God is our Father, therefore we are His heirs. What then does it mean to be a joint heir with Christ? Jesus Christ is the oldest Son, therefore by rights of ancient inheritance laws, all properties of the Father go to Him. Paul teaches, Hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Hebrews 1.2 By being joint heirs with Christ means that Christ is willing to give us an equal share. Paul said, Wherefore thou art no more a servant but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Galatians 4.7 What is it that we inherit? In Hebrews 1.14, he declares that we shall be heirs of salvation. Paul further stated that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Peter teaches us that husband and wife shall be heirs together of the grace of life. James teaches that we shall be heirs of the kingdom. Being heirs of salvation, however, is not unconditional. As stated by Paul, we must suffer with him. As James stated, we must be rich in faith as well as love for Christ. Christ said, If you love me, keep my commandments. What does it mean to suffer with Christ? It is symbolized beautifully by Simon, the man of Cyrene, who helped bear the cross of Christ as Christ stumbled toward Golgotha. In broad terms, it means to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. In more specific terms, it means to keep the commandments of God regardless of the cost and to serve our fellow man and endure whatever sacrifice is placed upon us, even to the point of loving our enemies, and doing good to them that hate us. Again, in the words of James we are told, Hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? The blessings, however, are unimaginable, in Paul's words, that we may be also glorified together. What does it mean to be glorified together? first, we must understand Christ. We turn to John in the first chapter of the book of Revelation to give us a startling description of the glorified Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and heard behind me a great voice, as a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. Revelation 1, 5-16 John tells us that the countenance of the resurrected Christ was as the sun shineth in his strength. The only way we could dwell in the presence of God is if we are also glorified together. A fascinating example of this is that when Moses came down from Mount Sinai the second time carrying the Ten Commandments, his face shone so brightly that the children of Israel made him put a veil over his face. 
they couldn't even look upon Moses' face. And Moses' face shined because he had been in the presence of Christ for 40 days. Another apostle who saw the resurrected Christ in his glory was Paul. He compares Christ to the sun at noonday. That same apostle was caught up into the third heaven. And in some of his most beautiful passages, he describes the difference among those three heavens, which are sometimes called the three degrees of glory. There are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for one star differeth from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. 1 Corinthians fifteen forty through 42 The first heaven, the lowest, is compared to the light of the stars. The second heaven, whose glory is beyond that of the stars, is compared to the light of the moon. The third heaven, the highest of all, is compared to the light of the sun. It is obvious that Christ lives in the third heaven, or the third degree of glory. If we are to be glorified together, we must inherit the third heaven of which Paul refers to above as the celestial kingdom. To live in the celestial glory, we must, like Christ, have celestial bodies. We can only have celestial bodies if we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. We can only be joint heirs with Christ if we suffer with him, or in other words, if we keep his commandments, that we may be glorified together. John also saw the third heaven. His description is as follows. And he shewed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads, and there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign for ever and ever. Revelation 22, 1-5 What possible blessing could be greater than to be heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, and reign with him for ever and ever? Thank you for listening. Watch for our next podcast. In Defense of Christianity is available at RonaldMesser.com.